The last theme, the third theme, is the new community. This also goes in the face of the Pharisees because for Jesus, the message of salvation was more than ethics. It's not about being good. It's not about doing the right thing. It's not about behaviorism. Now, don't get me wrong. The First Testament and the Second Testament emphasize right behavior a lot. Uh, Paul says if you're in Christ, then your behavior must match that of Christ. Like, but it's not behaviorism where it's all about behaving and doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. And as long as I do that, then I'm good. Ethics. Because for Paul in the First Testament... It's about I behave the right way because I love God and I want to please him. And when I look like God, I have better fellowship with him. And then I get to do things with him more. If you have a rebellious child all the time, you don't want them to be non-rebellious because they don't want to get punished and because they want a reward. You want them to not be non-rebellious because they don't want to be in timeout all the time and missing out on the family. It's, you, you want them to behave correctly because they love you and they want to hang out with you. And they know that being a good person, for lack of a better phrase, is what allows the family to be more smooth. And the more loving they are, then the more love that everybody else feels and the better than they feel about themselves and the greater sense of community they have with each other and, the, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, that can still sound works-oriented, but now you're doing it because I want to be with you not because I don't want to be punished by you or I want a reward from you. Behavior is important, but the motivation for it is what's important. But for Jesus, not about just behaviorism for the sake of behaviorism. If you want ethics and behaviorism, then go be a Hindu, go be a Buddhist, go be a Muslim. The thing that makes Christianity unique is the motivation. So this is about being a child of God. This is about loving the community and doing right in the community because you truly love them. And this is what Jesus come. I have compassion for you because I actually care about you. Not because I want the world to pat me on the back and think I'm a great philanthropist. I, I pay for your bills and I give you money. Not because I'm hoping my good works will outweigh my bad works. Because I actually want you to be benefited. And, and this is why the law forbids interest and people paying you back. Because then it becomes a works-oriented thing. I mean, if somebody wants to pay you back, they're more than welcome to do it. But for you to demand interest or pay back, that's not biblical. That's not godly because you're not doing it to help them now. Now it's just, I'll give you this, but I expect it back. And that's not really love. What Christ comes along is he's saying, this new community is not scorekeeping. It's not maintaining what you already have and deserve. It's about being outwardly focused. It's about truly loving people and being compassionate and caring about them, even to the point of self-sacrifice. And this goes in the face of the Pharisees. For him, the Father desires to embrace them with grace and love and compassion. And these key themes that describe this new community are faith, independence, total commitment, love for Yahweh and one's neighbor, commitment to the lost, prayer, persistence in suffering, and joy and praise. That your love for other people might actually cause you to be cast out of the community and be crippled and to go blind and to be physically ill. But that's okay because rejoice that your name is written in the kingdom of God. Not that you have power and the demons bow down to you. 
Jesus also showed through his deeds that he had come to preach the good news to the needy, to heal the sick, and to seek the lost. His message is, I've come for everybody. And this is why the prodigal son's parable is one of the greatest parables that completely goes in the face of who is your neighbor. And for Jesus, your neighbor is anyone that you cross paths with, regardless of their health, wealth, status, gender, or anything. And this is what makes Jesus so radical, even in the church today. Many believers in the church live out the gospel of Christ really well. But the church as a whole still has its cultural snobbery in different ways and different forms. And he's even countercultural to that. So the power of Jesus' message and being part of the covenant people of Yahweh is not about self and power. It's not about keeping score. It's not about self-sufficiency. And it's not about power. When we get power, we use it to fulfill our desires at the expense of other people. Jesus had absolute power, and he emptied himself and died on the cross to give us the power to be freed from sin, death, and the devil. That's the difference. But it's about whether you know Yahweh intimately or not. The the main goal that Jesus is trying to teach is it's not about power. It's not about self-sufficiency. It's about whether you know God. You know him. My old principal, his name is Buzz Inboden. And one of the most, I have great respect for him. He's like a surrogate father to me. He's not perfect, but he has that compassion and servanthood down for all people regardless. And one of the things that's absolutely phenomenal about him is all throughout my life, even in my seminary and even my Christian colleges, when any speaker got up and spoke, when people got up and did something, everybody always introduced them as they're a part of this organization, they do this job, they've written this book, they're a part of this ministry, they've done this and this and this and this. And that's how everybody gets introduced all the time. But every time that Buzz in chapel or any time in a, a little meeting or even like one-on-one with him, when he introduced people, some of these people came in and they were credentialed big time. They had accomplished more in their lifetime than most people in the state had all put together. But yet he never ever mentioned that. What he would always say is, this is the person that stood next to me when I was struggling in my marriage. Or this is the person that was here at the funeral with me. And this or this person. It was always about how they were involved in his life relationally or in other people's lives that he cared about relationally. And that's what he always, how he always introduced people and still does. That's how he introduces people. The impact that they had on his life relationally. The sacrifices they made to love him or love people that he cared about. Now, I'm not saying that he never, ever said what they had done or accomplished, but that was just so minor or secondary or just casually in a conversation, not as the introduction. And, and, and that's what Jesus is saying here. It, it's not about what you've done. It's not about who you are. It's not about the status. It's not about your power. It's not about how self-sufficient you've been. It's about, do you have a relationship with God? And do you have a relationship with other people? That's the new community. And it's not marked by the law. It's not marked by ethnicity. It's not marked by obedience even. It's marked by, do you love and want to know God? And if you're, you can be millions and millions of ways, miles away from God, like the tax collector. 
or really close to God, like the Pharisee thought they were. But all that mattered was the Pharisee was walking away from God even though he was closer, and the tax collector was moving towards God even though he was further away. And that's why Jesus looks at the tax collector and can actually have the audacity to say, he's greater in the kingdom of God. Not based on his behavior, but based on his movement towards God. And if you love God, and you know God, and you're pursuing him, God will take care of the behavior through the Holy Spirit. And this is the new community that Christ is emphasizing. As we go through the Gospel of Luke, this is what will be emphasized. These three themes, I want you to have them back in your head. If you need to review them again in the notes or the audio, I would strongly encourage you because the better grasp that you have on these three themes, the better the stories of Christ are going to make more sense. And it might cease to be another Sunday school story that I've heard before. And it might seem a little less episodic because the Gospels are very episodic where they don't feel like they're connected in any kind of way, the stories. And it might feel more like the story of Christ doing something radical. And then you'll begin to realize he's flying in the face of us as well. It's really easy when you have a, a narrow understanding of the Pharisees to think, yes, they're the bad guys, and we're not like that. But when you begin to realize a worldview, yeah, our worldview may not be exactly like theirs, but our heart worldview is similar. And that's when you begin to realize that Christ is in our face as well. And he's got a lot of words for the church today, especially the church in light of what's been happening the last two years. And many Christians have been phenomenal, but the church as a whole has been lacking a lot of ways. These are the three major themes. So the structure of the book, the last thing in the introduction. The structure. There are three major sections to the Gospel of Luke. The first division is Luke chapter 1 through 950. This is the first major section. And this includes the births of Jesus and John. So you can divide this section into two parts. The first part is the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, the introduction, the birth announcement of John and Jesus, and then the actual birth of John and Jesus. And then the second part of that first section is then the ministry of Jesus in the Galilee. His baptism, his anointing, his temptation, and then the beginning of his ministry and healing all in the Galilee region, which is all in the north around the Sea of Galilee. That's the first division with two minor sections in it. And in that section, it's all about Jesus revealing himself to be the divine glory of Yahweh and declaring that he is the redeeming Messiah. Okay, so this is who Jesus is. So by the time you get to chapter 9, you realize everything that I've told you. You realize that he is radically, diametrically opposed to everything in the culture. His philosophy, his worldview, the way that he acts, the way that he talks. Who is this guy who speaks and does things that nobody else does or talks like? Okay, he's different. And by this point, it's obvious that he is king, God, both. That's the first section. Then in chapter 9, begins the next section. The very end of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 51 through 1948, becomes the journey to Jerusalem. In all the Gospels, they all have this thing called the Passion Narratives. 
And the passion narratives are Jesus going to the cross and dying on the cross. And they're usually like three or four chapters long. Matthew starts around chapter 26, and the whole book ends at chapter 28. I, it might start in chapter 25, but basically three to two chapters. In Luke's gospel, the passion narrative starts in chapter 9. Because in chapter 9, he ends that first section by saying, the Son of Man must suffer and die. It's the first time he ever mentions dying. And the disciples are like, what the heck, you're crazy. And from that point on, it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And everything there. See, all the other gospel writers, they just kind of go to Galilee and then Jerusalem, back to Galilee and Jerusalem. And most likely Jesus probably really did that, just bounce back and forth. But in Luke's gospel, he's in the Galilee, he's making his journey to Jerusalem, and he's in Jerusalem. He rearranges the material in order to have those three steps. And all from chapter 9 to chapter 19 is Jesus going towards Jerusalem. And he talks about his death again. He talks about his death again. He talks about his death again. And it's everything there. And all everything he does, all of his teachings, all of his miracles are now under the shadow of death as he talks. And in the, the Chosen does a good job of showing this too. They don't show Luke's distinction necessarily, but that, that scene where Jesus walks by the crucifixion and everything just slows down. The disciples are arguing and fighting and, da, 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 and talking about this, and he's just watching the crucifixion, and it's the first year of his ministry. And that, that's like haunting. That's haunting, okay, because he knows what's coming. He knows that this is the beginning of that. The, you have to realize the first miracle that Jesus does is what starts the clock ticking. That when he goes to Mary and he says, woman, my time has not come, and she's like, Turn, do something now. She's not thinking miracle. She's just thinking you're the head of the house. Fix it, because that's what older brothers, older cousins do, right? Fix it. And he's like, woman, my time has not come, which women, woman is a t- term of endearment at that time. Because he knows the minute he does a miracle, he has started the clock on his death. And there's no turning back. And somewhere between there and there, the Holy Spirit came in and said, it is your time. And then the clock starts ticking. This is that next division. So then the third division is chapter 20, verse 1 through 24, 53. And this is him in Jerusalem. This is the week of him in Jerusalem. And this is the Pharisees have finally pulled out all their claws and knives and they're digging into Christ to get him to corner himself in some statement that can get him killed, and then they kill him. And the only reason that Jesus slightly plays along with their game is because he knows he has come to die. But all through these, you also see Jesus controlling the narrative. There are times where he will not do what the Pharisees want him to do because he knows it will speed the clock up. There are times where he says, don't tell anybody what I did because he knows it will speed up the clock. And then one minute he's not doing it, and the next minute he says, tell people, because he knows he needs the clock sped up. And he knows, and then he'll get the Pharisees and say something that will really tick them off. And But then the next time he won't want to tick them off, because what he's doing is con- completely controlled in clock. Because there is a very certain day of the week and a very certain date of the month that he has to die on. And only he can control what day he actually dies on. And so you'll see all these things, what he'll do and will not do, and you're like, there's no rhyme or reason. Why is he so inconsistent? He's not inconsistent because he's playing the clock. He's controlling it. 
And that's what he's consistent about. He's doing what he needs to do. It's kind of like in sports when you drive really hard and the gap is closed and then you back off a little bit and then you drive again when you see the gap open and then and somebody's like, why is he so inconsistent? But people who get soccer are like, he's not inconsistent. He's controlling the game. Okay, and, and that's what you need to understand. And so these are the three major divisions. And this is reflected in the outline. The first two Roman numerals of the first division with its two sections. The third Roman, division, Roman numeral is the thir- second division. The fourth is the next. And then the next page is the map. And this is the map of every city and every region that will be mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. And you can use this as your reference. Is, does this make sense? Is this beneficial? Are there any questions? <laughs>